Good afternoon, I'm Paul, and I have the joy today to share the Lord's Word. And uh, I don't have a slide telling you the title of my sermon, but the title is Imperishing, Undefiled, and Unfading. And you may have noticed those words are not at all in the passage that we just heard, and that's because just for this part of the verses, I've used the words from the ESV, slightly different translation, but the same idea. What is said in the NIV translation is in verse 4, and it says, the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Same basic idea, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Just a slightly different wording. I thought it made a nicer title. <laughs> uh, we are going to look at the way our Christian walk, the way we live day to day, can be enhanced that we can rejoice, both here and now and in the future, despite what any, whatever kind of perishing defilement or fading may happen. We have a promised inheritance guarded for us in heaven by the Lord, and that is an important fact. It will change the way we live as Christians, hopefully. <laughs> so... You may also have noticed that as Peter is describing this inheritance, there are six truths. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And get used to me saying those words because I will say them a lot throughout this sermon. But there are another three truths, and you might have thought, ah, Paul is moving with the classic three-point sermon. Didn't want to deal with all of the text, so he's picked the bits that were easiest to manage. But I think there was a distinction between the truths. And so truths four through six, the inheritance is kept in heaven for us. It is going to be ours and God is protecting it. And lastly, number six, it will be revealed in the last times. I promise I didn't just pick the three that I wanted to write my sermon around. The difference is one is about the nature of our inheritance and the other, the final three truths, uh, about the way we can maintain our hope, why we should keep thinking about it, keep thinking about the nature of this hope, this inheritance. Peter was writing this letter approximately 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. If there are any biblical scholars in the audience who have a particular bone to pick about the exact date of First Peter, we can talk about the nuances. But the point is, the Christians that were receiving this letter we're experiencing some amount of persecution. The date you want to attribute to the letter is based on which persecution you think they were suffering. But the agreement is they were facing persecution. Uh, it was difficult to imagine what it was like as a new Christian. I don't know about you, but my experience of persecution has never been my life, my livelihood, or my nationality. At most, it has been my friends, my family, maybe first impressions. Despite this, I think we can draw the parallels and connect the way in which we should think about our inheritance, shaping our behavior and giving us hope, in the same light as the Christians who received this letter. It was written to 
hundreds and thousands of Christians sprinkled throughout of kind of what we think of as modern-day Turkey. And they were just beginning to experience probably local government-based persecution. Rules were beginning to be put in place saying, don't do business with anyone who calls themselves a Christian. Don't let them attend the different kinds of temples we have. It was beginning to become rules that were enforced. It wasn't just social capital. It was beginning to get more and more dangerous to be a Christian. And that's the context that Peter is writing his letter. A lot of the epistles in the New Testament, almost all of them, I think barring two by the way that I was thinking about it, start with a very similar premise. Hello, name of people that I'm writing to, and here's something about me that means you should listen to me. So a statement of authority. The reason you can trust what I'm going to tell you and instruct you and encourage you with and Peter has done the same thing here. We've skipped verses 1 to 3, but that's the basic idea. He said, hi, I know you're Christians. I'm Peter, new Jesus. You need to care about what I'm about to say. And then, as I was preparing the sermon, I was floored by the way so many epistles start with incredible summaries of the gospel. It is almost always front and centre. All of these New Testament books that want to teach us about how to live as Christians are rooted deeply and strongly in the gospel, and that is something we should be too. I hope as you and I meditate on being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that we too will naturally overthrow, overflow with praise and worship of our Lord. Clear throughout all of First Peter, not just the section we've uh, read today, is that the Christians who receive this letter have been and can continue to expect to suffer persecution. And he, Peter wants to encourage them, wants to encourage the Christians from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, I don't know why I included that in the sermon, it's just a chance to trip me up on all the names, uh, that whilst things may be hard now, might be genuinely unpleasant outright dangerous, that they can have hope, a living hope that will remain untouched and put everything from this life, all the persecution that they are suffering and likely to suffer, in a totally different perspective. I, of course, uh, have drawn a little bit of comparison between the kind of persecution we have may, may have faced lately, here and now, compared to the persecution that the Christians receiving this letter would have experienced. But I don't mean to belittle the very real ways in which living faithfully as a Christian will be abrasive to a world and culture that rejected Jesus. The tension we face as we read the Bible is between acknowledging the universal truths, the things that are always applicable to all Christians always, and the things that were specifically about the context in which they were written. The gospel is offensive to non-Christians, and when we preach it and live it out, we will stir up trouble. That part is a universal truth. Before I got married, I lived in one share house or another for near on seven years. I lived with close friends who I had known since I was four, I lived with people I didn't meet until they moved in. And the one thing that didn't change 
was you did not want to look in the crisper drawer of my fridge. <laughs> when I read or hear the word perishable, or in this context, imperishable, one of my first thoughts is the horrors of that crisper drawer. <laughs> I have a very tangible experience with perishable things in this world. But Peter, maybe with a slightly different context, uses a much less gross example. Uh, in verse 7, he discusses gold. The faith demonstrated by the dispersed and suffering Christians is more precious than gold that perishes. It's commonplace to talk about buying perishable goods, and maybe that should have been a warning to me that something happens to them. <laughs> but we know gold as something that doesn't perish. And the reason Peter brings it up is because in the ancient world, that was the idea. The reason it was perish was because once you refined it, once you made it pure, it lasted a long time. It didn't rust, didn't wear, it was still good. And the way in which you purify gold is through testing it by fire. And to this day, one of the means of purifying gold is still fire. You heat it up, and as it bubbles and turns into a liquid, you stir. All the impurities that are not pure gold come to the top, and you scoop them away. Of course, on a more industrial level, we have slightly better techniques now. We use uh, two of the most potent acids that we've been able to come up with, but the idea is the same. You apply some means of destruction to the gold. You test it. You put it through something that, if God gold could feel, would be unpleasant. And you remove the impurities and are left with something more pure. And yet, Peter, in, still in verse 7, the faith of the Christians is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. If our faith is more precious than gold because it does not perish, think of the inheritance promised to us that likewise is imperishable. This is the first strand of the three aspects of the inheritance that we are looking at today. Peter tells Christians, new Christians in particular, none of them can have been Christians for very long, that even though they are facing persecution, Jesus' death and resurrection ensures them of a living hope, a sure inheritance, a hope and inheritance so amazing that the suffering they might continue to face for a little while, meaning possibly the rest of their lives, will be worth it. I have found that hard to understand at times. Pain and suffering sucks. We naturally want to end it as soon as we can or avoid it. And yet, Peter doesn't say, this hope prevents pain and suffering. He says, it is worth it. We too are guaranteed this inheritance. We too, according to great, uh, God's great mercy, can be born again to this imperishable inheritance. Peter doesn't offer false promises. It's not promises of health, wealth, and happiness. 
Peter knows there has been and almost certainly will continue to be a cost to their faith. And that is a universal truth now. Even comfortable middle-class lives as Christians will in, uh, include suffering. Things will not go perfectly. And yet, our hope in this inheritance can be of equal worth as it was to these Christians suffering much differently to us. Maybe the cost for us will be uh, avoiding gossip, avoiding judging the driver who cut us off on the way to church. Or maybe it will help you like it helps me <laughs> to avoid getting too grumpy and uh, snappy when Essendon leaves the footy. To deny your sinful desires is a cost, a different cost to your life and livelihood, but to live in humble obedience in response to our loving God is work. It is not always easy. And on Monday, tomorrow, someone could ask how your weekend was. And you know that if you talk about church, about a Bible passage, about being saved from sin, it will be awkward, uncomfortable. That they will think you're weird, they won't ask how your weekend is anymore. The stakes may be higher. They could make assumptions about how you feel about all manner of cultural things. It could change friendships. And that you listened to a sermon that says everyone is sinful is rightly offensive. People don't like to hear that they are imperfect. And yet, you will have the opportunity in some way, at some time in this coming week, to think back on this inheritance, this perfect inheritance. And I hope that it will encourage you to choose the bold option, the slightly scary option, the option that points people to Jesus. To echo uh, Peter's words, in this you rejoice. Rejoice and focus on the promised future glory and be willing to reject sin. Uh, you've likely heard the words from the famous hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And likewise, our hope is Jesus' blood. It is to wash us clean, whiter than snow. So often the images of snow, of white clothes, are used in the Bible to indicate purity. They are a visual metaphor. On a white shirt a white dress on a field of snow, any stain is immediately easy to see. It is obvious. That is what our purity is like. The moment it is tarnished, it is unavoidably noticeable. And in this fallen, broken world, nothing is without blemish. All people... Everyone, all of us here, are corrupted by our sinfulness. Defilement is a stronger word than simply bad or imperfect. And I found it hard to find a helpful way of exploring the idea. We've certainly heard the word, maybe even used it. 
But I found myself coming back to the way God uses it and finding myself short, finding my examples not quite enough. One of the few uh, positive versions, the flip side, is kind of hallowed ground, purity. And I pursued that line of reasoning and thought back to my work at the MCG. I am a cricket tragic. I will happily watch most balls of test match. I uh, am a real chore to be married to in summer, poor Bethany. And when I worked at the MCG, I got to use the staff entrance and come in underneath the ground, walk past the training nets, round the stands and up to the bar. And it frequently gave me goosebumps. And yet, I don't think there is anything that MCG would reject hosting if offered a good enough deal. The sacredness, the hallowed ground of the MCG is shallow. It is small. It can be defiled readily and easily. Not so with God. It is a perfect inheritance that is waiting for us, guarded by God, who does not shift, who does not alter. He is perfect and cannot and will not be united with imperfection. This means us. He has made us perfect. He has offered us perfection through Jesus. We can't attain it on our own. And yet, through Jesus' perfect righteousness and death in our place, we can live with God, undefiled, washed clean, pure and perfect. Unlike so many things during our short time on earth, things that fade and grow less clear, Peter writes of the love these various Christians scattered all through Monday Turkey have for Jesus. Love without seeing, believing without seeing, the dispersed Christians, their love and their belief, rather than fading, grows with clarity. And finally, they obtain the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. Much like the redemptive story from Genesis through to Revelation, God's plan and active role in his creation was slowly revealed. As you read through the Bible, each new generation has slightly more information about the plan until it comes to culmination in Jesus. We get to see the full plan. Jesus is the fulfillment and culmination of God's plan to bless all the nations. Peter wants to make it clear that throughout history, God has kept his promises. And Peter is making concrete another promise to the Christians. This promise is of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that when faced between the choice to sin or to obey, when facing persecution, we can look to the inheritance being guarded by you, that it can inspire us, fill us with hope and rejoicing. Pray that we live in a way that glorifies you and your Son. In your name. Amen.